Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you can create those products that customers love. Now, do you feel your time and attention is being pulled in too many directions and what you want to get done isn't really what's getting done? I sure do. I feel that. And for me, focus has been getting more challenging as I'm taking on new projects to help more product managers. And I've needed to step back a little and do some meta work to better organize my time and get a handle on this. And this includes putting into practice what I learned from this interview, a discussion with Nir Isle about the research he did to help him tackle the same issues. He synthesized what he learned in his latest book, Indistractable. Love that title. The subtitle is How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Nir joined us in our very first year of this podcast, way back in episode 030. If you listen to him then, you've been with us for a long time, and I appreciate that. What he was discussing is how we can build habit-forming products. He is a writer, consultant, and a teacher at the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. And I love talking with him because he always has new insights for me. I needed this interview, and I bet you do too. And remember, if you hear something and you want to go back to the summary of it, we take those show notes for you. Also, any links we talk about, you'll find those in the show notes, and that's at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 259. Now, let's talk with Nir. Nir, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovators again. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Chad. Great to be here. So you were with us a few years ago. You had a great, very popular book out, Wall Street Journal bestseller. Lots of leaders read this book, and they had asked their people to read it as well, called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and love that. And now you have followed that up with something called Indistractable. And boy, doesn't that sound like a word that should be part of the English language? (laughs) It sounds like it should have always been there. Immediately when I heard the word, when I heard you talk about this on another interview, I thought, that's perfect. I just, that's absolutely perfect. It actually took me forever to come up with that title. So I, <laughs> I really appreciate that you validated that. It took me out. We were for the longest time, we're trying to figure out what the book would be called. We yeah. At first we thought, okay, let's maybe my publisher wanted it to be unhooked, but I didn't really want that title because I, I'm not invalidating anything that was published right. in the first I still stand behind everything in hooked. We can still use these techniques to build healthy habits in users' lives. So I didn't want to write the opposite of that. I wanted to write a book about how we can become better ourselves. So, so the, this book, Indistractable, is not about uh, product design. It's about how we can become better product designers <laughs> and mm-hmm. better people, for that matter, by, by doing what we say we're going to do, by becoming indistractable. Yeah, and I think it's a really important topic for our audience, product managers. We tend to be really rushed and have trouble getting work done. It's the common complaint from many I hear about. And a lot of us, we show up at work not really even knowing what the day is going to look like. Yeah because we get stuck with fires and like. So since you created this great word that will now be part of the dictionary, I'm sure soon, tell us what it means to you. Yeah, so the meaning of indistractable. So the nice thing is when you coin your own word, when you make up a word, you can define it any way you like. Mm-hmm. And so I define becoming indistractable as, as being the kind of person who strives to do what they say they're going to do. 
It's about the kind of person who strives to live with personal integrity. Now, why do I use that word strive? Because it's not something you ever finish achieving. It's like creativity. Are you ever done building your creativity? No, you, you, it's something that you use as a macro skill that helps you do all kinds of other things in life. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the same is true for becoming indistractable. It's something that we're on a constant journey to become. I like that constant journey to, to become. That actually aligns really well with the journey I've been on for the last year and a half or so that some people characterize as mindset. Hmm. And, you know, I'm engineer by background, wired that way. And when I first encountered this whole idea of mindset, it felt very woo-woo-ish to me. And mm-hmm. like, I don't have time for what you're talking about. But I got pulled into a few things and some exercises that were really helpful to just help me recognize that I don't necessarily think about things the way I should, that I tell myself mm-hmm. some things that actually aren't true that are limiting what I could be accomplishing and how I could be helping others. And when I look at your book, I wonder just about that kind of relationship. Is this a mindset sort of book and also a very practical book on being more focused and getting done what you want to get done? Those things that matter to you? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the idea behind this book, you know, I wrote it first and foremost for me that I found that I was becoming distracted that when I wrote my first book, you know, I, I wasn't getting a lot of inbound emails. I wasn't getting a lot of phone calls. Uh, I wasn't getting a lot of speaking engagements. But then after I wrote the book, and, and sorry, I should back up. So when I wrote Hooked, it, it was relatively easy. There, were, there weren't that many demands on my time. As easy I, as writing a book can be, right? Yeah, you're right, right. Because I could, I could actually, you know, I would, I had plenty of time, so to speak, to work on it. But then the, the, the more successful the book became, the more demands they were on my time, the more distractions there were in my life. Right. And so I found it really hard to do the thing that made me successful, which was to research and to write. And I found myself becoming very distracted. I would be with my daughter. And as opposed to being fully present with her, I was constantly checking my phone. Uh, when I would sit down at my desk to write, to do, to work on a project, I would, you know, just Google something or read the news or do something else as a distraction. I would say I was going to work out and I wouldn't. I would say I would eat healthfully and I wouldn't. And so this this question of why don't we do things, why don't we do what we say we're going to do really perplexed me. And I wanted to get down to the, to the real answer of why it does this occur. And it turns out I'm certainly not the first person to ask this question. In fact, Plato asked this question 2,500 years ago. He called it akrasia, the tendency that we all have to do things against our better interests. And so he asked the very same question of if we know what to do, And I would argue today, we know what to do better than ever, right? Everything is just a Google search away. Who doesn't know how to eat right? You know, we all basically know that if we want to eat healthfully, chocolate cake is not as good for us as as a healthful salad. Who doesn't know that? Who doesn't know that if you want to have a better relationship with your friends and loved ones, you have to be fully present? Who doesn't know that if you want to be better at your job, you have to actually do the work without getting distracted by other stuff? So we all know this stuff. We actually know what to do. The problem is we don't know how to stop getting distracted. And so I would argue that to have the kind of life you want, to do the kind of work you want to do, to be the kind of person you want to be, it's not just about doing the right things. It's also making sure you don't get distracted by the wrong things. And I didn't see a book on on really how to do that, especially when I think in this day and age, even though distraction is not a new problem, it's been with us since time immemorial, I do think that if you are looking for distraction, it's easier than ever to find. Mm -hmm. Because technology has become so pervasive and so persuasive, and that's generally been a good thing. We love these technologies. They're wonderful. But that also means that if distraction you are seeking, then distraction you will find. And so we have to have these new tactics in our life. We need to learn this new skill set 
in order to make sure that we can become indistractable. And it's a skill set that now is, I think, is more important than ever. As you said, it's easy to find out anything, right? It's not like we don't know what's right. But if I go to YouTube and I look up a how-to video to help me solve some problem I'm having right now, well, gosh, I might spend the next 20 minutes easily just looking at the (laughs) follow-up videos. Like, oh, that's interesting too. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that doesn't mean that there's anything, you know, sinister with YouTube. It's built to do what we want it to do. We want it to, to it's so interesting, right? right? There's so much great content out there that, that of course, it's going to suck us in if we don't know how to take measures in advance to make sure we do what we really want to do. Right. But these distractions are easy. And I think also, I won't speak for everyone, for me, I find myself some of the times because I know there's work that needs to get done. And maybe it's a little bit more challenging than other work that it's Mm. easier for me to push it off and do things that are more distracting that kind of feel like I'm accomplishing something, but I'm not really, right? Okay, so this is a great point. I'm so glad you mentioned this. So, so this is a really great time to talk about the diff- what, what is distraction, really? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm a big uh, word guy. You know, I really care about what words mean. And so in order to understand what distraction is, we have to understand what distraction is not. Mm-hmm. So the opposite of distraction, if you ask most people, what's the opposite of distraction? They'll say focus. Mm-hmm. But that's not true. I don't think it's true. In fact, if you look at the entomology of the word, the opposite of distraction is not focus. It is traction. Both traction and distraction come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same six-letter word, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you are doing with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction, anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do with intent. So this is really important for two reasons. Number one, anything can become a distraction. Uh-huh. So as you said, right, this would happen to me every day. Okay, I'm going to work on that big project. I'm going to do the thing that I said I'm going to do. The thing that I've been procrastinating on right after I check my email, right? <laughs> right Right after I scroll this Slack channel, right after I just talk to my colleague real quick. That sounds like important stuff, right? That's you sound of- like you're in my office. Right? <laughs> yes, you're, this is exactly what's going on in uh-huh. my brain every day before I wrote this book, let me tell you. And, and so, you know, we feel like it's, it's productive, but this is what I call pseudo work. Because that pseudo work, that stuff that feels like urgent, comes at the expense of the important. And so we're constantly reacting all day long without actually reflecting upon whether what we're doing is what we really wanted to do with our time. So anything can be a distraction. And similarly, anything can be traction. Right. Now, what's the difference between traction and distraction? It's about what you plan to do. So if you planned to scroll Facebook, to watch a YouTube video, to read the paper, to meditate, to pray, to go on a walk, to have time with your your spouse or your kids. All that stuff is wonderful Uh as long as you do it on your schedule, not on somebody else's, not because of some ping or ding, not because somebody wanted you to do something, but because you decided in advance, this is how I want to spend my time. So the reason this book I think is so important and so different from every other book on the topic, and I read all of them because I was trying to solve the problem for myself, is that every other book tells you, Get rid of the technology. The technology is at fault. The technology is melting your brain. It's hijacking your brain. It's addicting you. That is bullshit. It's not true for the vast majority of people. Some people do become addicted to technology. That's true because anything that solves pain, any analgesic is potentially addictive. So do some people become alcoholics? Absolutely. But not everybody who has a drink uh, of, of wine or beer with dinner is an alcoholic. That's ludicrous. Do some people who have sex become sex addicts? Yes. Do some people who gamble become problem gamblers? Yes, but not everybody. Mm -hmm. And so this is the nuance that I think is so often lost today, especially in the media that, of course, 
ironically, makes more money the more we click and the more we read on articles that tell us that technology is hijacking our brain and that's addicting everyone. It's a big reason why I wanted to write this book because I wanted to tell people that they are not powerless. That in fact, by thinking that technology is hijacking our brain, we are making it so. It's called learned helplessness. And so I want to dispel this myth, this narrative that somehow it's controlling our brains. That is ludicrous. It's not true. There's a lot we can do about it, starting with this idea of, look, if you want time for traction in your day, if you want to do the things that help you live according to your values, one of the first steps is to make time for it, to actually have what's called a time box calendar. And this is something that it will change your home life. It'll change your work life. It'll change your relationship with your boss and your colleagues by having this time box calendar and then doing what's called a schedule sync where we sit down with our boss, when we sit down with our colleagues and we do a 15 minutes, it's all it takes, 15 minutes, a quick schedule sync. This is a life-changing practice. It, it, can, it can help you so much. Make sure that you do what it is you say you're going to do. So we should dive into both of those since those are life-changing practices, I think. And basically, this is just free consulting for me, right? I'm sure everyone listening gets great value out of this, but I need help with this. And I think part of that is, you know, just as my years have accumulated living, I have more interests. And at the same time, it's probably a little bit easier for my mind to flip between things that I want it to stay somewhere else at times. So I have my little hacks that I try to manage that one is simply to, you know, when I'm working on something and all of a sudden a thing flashes through my mind, oh, our water pressure tank, we're on a well system at my house, hasn't been working and I need to order one. This happened to me a few days ago, right? And then I'm spending the next hour researching tanks and, you know, not at all what I planned for that time. And so my simple hack is I put it right on a list, get it out of my mind, know I can go back to it later. Take us into the time box calendar as a tool, how we can use that. Yeah. So, you know, there, but I, I want to, before I do that, I, I want to talk about something that, that you mentioned that mm-hmm. I think is very, very important because actually that's the, the making time for traction is step two. Step one, and the most important part of becoming indistractable is mastering the internal triggers. Mm-hmm. Because in order to understand what moves us towards traction and what moves us towards distraction, we have to understand the triggers that prompt those actions. So we all know about the external triggers, the pings, the dings, the rings, all of these things in our environment that can move us towards traction or distraction. That's kind of what everybody tends to blame on distraction. But it turns out that in the five years of research that I conducted in this book, what I realized is that the vast majority of distraction does not start from outside of us, but in fact, most distraction starts from within. These are called internal triggers that in fact, Everything we do, if you look at it from a neurological basis, everything we do is not about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. This is called Freud's pleasure principle, and neurologically speaking, it is not true. But in fact, everything we do, we do for one reason, and that is to escape discomfort. Even the desire for a pleasurable sensation, wanting, craving, lusting, desire, there's a reason we say love hurts, because wanting pleasure is itself psychologically destabilizing. So think about it physiologically, right? If we go outside, it's cold, we put on a jacket. If we go back inside, now it's hot, we take it off. Mm -hmm. If we are hungry, we feel hunger pangs, that's not comfortable, so we eat. And when we're stuffed, oh, that doesn't feel good, we stop eating. So that's physiologically what happens. And of course, psychologically, that's exactly the same principle that holds true. When we are feeling lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we're bored, we check stock prices and sports scores and the news and Pinterest and Reddit. All these tools cater to these uncomfortable psychological sensations. So what we have to realize is that when it comes to time management, we have to realize that time management 
is pain management. Hmm. And I don't care what guru's techniques you use or what latest life hacks you're, in, you're integrating in your life. Fundamentally, if we don't face this fact, that distraction, most distraction starts from within us because we are seeking to escape an uncomfortable sensation. If we don't face that fact and learn ways to cope with it in a healthier manner, we will always become distracted by something. So what you just illustrated earlier when you said, oh, I have that water heater, I, I, I got to make sure I take care of it. There was an uncomfortable feeling. There was an itch. There was a psychological imbalance that you wanted to take care of. And then that led you towards distraction, right? Okay. That leads you away from what you plan to do with your time. So finding methods to cope with that discomfort, right? With the anxiety, the uncertainty, the stress, fatigue, whatever it might be, that's prompting us to distraction, whether that's in our home life, our work life, that is the most important first step. After we do that, and I give you all sorts of techniques to do that. After we do that, the next step is to make time for traction. And so to answer your question, the way we do this is we start with our values. Okay. We turn our values into time. Now, what does that mean? So there are three life domains that I describe. In the middle, you've got you, okay? If you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of others. So in the middle is taking care of you. So here we ask ourselves, what are our values when it comes to taking care of ourselves? If you value, not that I'm saying you should, but if you value taking care of your physical health, well, do you have time in your schedule for proper sleep? Do you have time in your schedule to exercise? Do you have time in your schedule to, to make healthy meals? Whatever it is that's important to you in your life, is that time on your calendar? As opposed to you know five-year visions and big, hairy goals, how about we start with next week? How do you want to spend your time next week? Then we look at our relationships. Do you have time for the important people in your life, for the people who matter to you, for your children? Do you have time on your schedule for them? And then finally, the work domain. And this is going to be most relevant. This is where most of us spend our time. And ironically, we start with that. Most people start with scheduling their day when it comes to the work domain. And then they give their kids and their spouse, just like I used to do, whatever time is left over. And then we're surprised why we're lonely and miserable and we don't have good relationships with people because we haven't planned time for them. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to that work domain, you know, when I researched this book, I asked so many people, does your job require time to think? Do you need time to do focused work, to strategize, to, 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 to think about where you want to go in the future? And everybody said, absolutely. But then when I said, well, where's that time on your schedule? Well, I don't know. <laughs> it right. didn't happen. And so we need time for that focused work. We also need time to respond to emails, to do those meetings. But don't let the reactive work be your entire day. Make time as well to do focused work. So when we have those three life domains, we put the time on our schedule. And we do this as frequently as our schedule changes. So for most people out there, a week's time is about the right interval. And I, I built a tool to make this super easy. You don't have to buy anything. You don't have to sign up for anything. I'll give you the link in the show notes. Great. It's on where you can build this time box calendar. And the idea here is not that you're militant about every minute of the day. It's not about rigidity. It's about the fact that sometimes constraints can give us freedom. Hmm. That when we know for the first time, when you look at your day and you say, ah, now I know the difference between traction and distraction. Anything on my schedule is traction. That's what I plan to do with my time. Anything that is not that is a distraction. And that process is life-changing because now you finally know the difference, right? Mm -hmm. So you're not, you're not succumbing to these pseudo work tasks. You know what it is you want to do with that time. Now, what happens when you still get distracted? That happens. Let's say a colleague comes over and says, hey, I need to talk to you right now. Well, that would be a distraction. So now we can categorize those distractions as they happen. There's only three causes, either an external trigger, like your colleague coming by your desk, an internal trigger, some kind of feeling that we're looking to escape. We were working on a project and we got bored. We got frustrated. We got anxious. 
and we looked for an escape by you know, checking Reddit or Hacker News or something. That's the internal trigger. The only other reason is a planning problem, right? You plan to do one thing and then you didn't allot enough time for it or you allotted too much time for it or something came up that you should have known would come up. So there's only three answers. So the reason this is so important is that even though we may still get distracted, now we know why we got distracted. You know, there's that saying that uh, insanity is doing the same thing again and again, expecting different results. How many of us go week after week getting distracted by the same crap and we don't do anything about it? right? That's insanity. So there's only three reasons. Now that you know what those three reasons are, you can evaluate it, you can look at it, and you can take steps to prevent it happening again in the future. And then finally, what we want to do with the schedule sync is we want to make sure that we are looking at our schedules with our, with our managers. So this is how we manage up. So we sit down with our boss and we say, hey, look, boss, here's my schedule for the week. Here's all the stuff you asked me to do. Now there's these other things I couldn't figure out where to put in my schedule because I only have so much time in the day, obviously. Uh-huh. Where should I reprioritize? This takes about 15 minutes and it will change your life because now you have transparency. Your boss has transparency into your schedule. And believe me, managers are begging for you to do this. They don't ask you to do it because they don't want you to feel like you're being micromanaged. But this is how you can manage up. This is how you can manage your boss by showing, hey, help me reprioritize this stuff. I don't know where this should go in my schedule because there's only so much time in the day. This will give you greater transparency. It'll increase your output. It'll increase your job satisfaction Mm -hmm. by doing this process. Incidentally, by the way, I also do this with my wife. (laughs) It saved my marriage (laughs) because we would constantly fight about household admin duties. Mm. And now we never fight about that stuff anymore because we both keep a time box calendar. That's a big difference. Oh, yeah. And with your boss, right, if it's working for your marriage, obviously, it's helping to improve that relationship with your manager as well. Absolutely. That transparency. And we need those kinds of conversations to understand if we're working on the right priorities and what is most important, what's going to make the biggest difference in our organization and the work that we're doing. Right. And many bosses are afraid to have these conversations because they don't want people to feel like they're, you know, checking up on them all the time. So do your boss a favor, do yourself a favor and do one of these schedule syncs. It's incredibly impactful. I'm interrupting the discussion just for a moment to tell you about a really interesting experience I had recently at a professional conference for product managers and innovators, the annual PDMA conference. Now, it was a great experience because I got to help so many people. And one form of this was several times a person that I helped in the past, they came to find me. They sought me out to introduce me to someone else that they were talking to someone that wanted to mentor their product managers to help them perform at a higher level. They recognize how important product development and management is to the success of their work and the organization. And they talk about this in terms of the increased pressures that they have. We all recognize this as product people. Wanting to create products that customers love, that's what everyday innovators are all about, we get that. But also products that meet revenue and profit expectations, we have to do that. And that can be delivered more quickly, decreasing time to market. That's a lot of needs to deliver on, and that's exactly what I help organizations do. And I have an excellent mentoring system for groups of product managers. It's called the Rapid Product Mastery Experience, or for short, the RPM Experience. Kind of catchy, RPM Experience. If you lead product managers, or you are a product manager at a company with other product managers, the RPM Experience is how you can create a higher-performing product team. And I have a quick guide that tells you how the system works and the results it provides. And you'll find that at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. It's helping other companies pull ahead of their competition and helping product managers work together better, enjoy their work more, and just be more effective. And I bet it can help you too. 
check it out at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. And as you were talking through this, you have a model in the book. And if I can, I'm going to share the image of it in the show notes that captures these, these points, right? It's the internal triggers, making time for traction, you say hacking back the external triggers and preventing distraction with packs. Right. right. So we've talked through a little bit of some of the internal triggers. Think about that, making time for traction that needs to be planned in and the three categories of external triggers. What about this preventing distraction with PAX thing? Well, we actually didn't get to the, the hacking back external triggers. Okay. That's the third step. That's, that's very, very important. So when we very talk good. about external triggers, we talk about, you know, everybody knows that we have our phones, the pings and dings on our computers. Of course, we have to turn off notification settings. Of course, we have to adjust these things so that they serve us as opposed to us serving them. That's kindergarten stuff. And there's a, uh, there's a, a few pages on how to do that, how to make sure that your phone is an indistractable phone, how to make sure that your computer is an indistractable workspace. That's obvious. Okay. Even though, believe it or not, two thirds of people with a smartphone, two thirds of people with a smartphone never change their notification settings. Is that crazy or what? I mean, the, 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 by not changing notification settings, you're just letting your life be controlled by the app makers, right? Whatever Facebook wants to ping you, whatever Instagram, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. the New York Times, the breaking news, we don't need that stuff to constantly interrupt us. So very simple stuff you can do. That's in the book. It's not, it's not rocket science. What I think is a much more important thing to focus on that I want to tell people about is to worry about the external triggers that are less obvious, okay? Think about how much time we spend in stupid meetings that didn't need to be called. Think about how much time you waste on email. So it turns out the Harvard Business Review found that 25% of the emails the average knowledge worker receives, they did not need to receive, and 25% of the emails they send, they did not need to send. So we spend a ton of time being super productive doing stuff we don't need to do. And so that's a huge source of distraction. So I tell you in the book exactly how to hack back email. Some folks tell me that they've saved 90% of the time they used to spend on email with some very simple techniques that you can use. But there's one other source of distraction I want to talk about because I know it's something that plagues many of us these days, which is the open floor plan office. Yes. So many of us work in these open floor plan offices that companies do, let's be honest, because it saves them a ton of money. That's why you know they, they can say having to build everyone their own office is very expensive. So we have these open floor plan offices. Now, of course, they'll whitewash it and say, oh, it's to increase creativity. All right, no, better no, collaboration. Yep. Yeah, what, whatever. <laughs> the studies show that, that it does not really bear out. But here's the thing. I give up. They're not going away. Okay, I can rally against why these things are not so great. But the fact is they save companies way too much money. So I had to think of a solution that could improve this workplace oddity that this thing that's not doing that's not so great for us how could we improve it and so i came up with this technique that's so simple and yet so effective and the idea here is that we want to send an explicit message to our colleagues when we need to do focused work so many people say oh we know if you just put on headphones and then everybody will know that you shouldn't be distracted. But if you've ever tried this, you know this doesn't really work because people think you're watching YouTube. And so they come by, first of all, they, they look down at you. They think, you're, they think you're slacking off. And two, they still interrupt you. So what I did is I inserted in every copy of Indistractable, there's what I call a screen sign. It's a piece of red cardstock. You pull out of the book, you fold it into thirds, and you put it on your computer monitor. And it has this stoplight on it that says, I'm indistractable at the moment. Please come back later. 
So even if somebody's new and doesn't know your policy around headphones or whatever, they still can see that there's this sign on your computer monitor that says, please don't interrupt me. I'm indistractable at the moment. Now, I'm not saying you need to do this all day long, right? It's okay to socialize with your, with your colleagues. But when you need to do that focused work time that you plan in your schedule, that's when you use this screen sign. It's a, it's a very, very simple and effective technique. And you don't even have to buy the book to do it. You, could, you can get a free one at indistractable.com or you can make your own for all I care. But that technique of telling your colleagues, nope, this is, this is my time to be indistractable is very, very effective. Right. It's such a simple, practical tool. And that also tells your own mind, this is time for me to stay not distractible, right? To stay that's focused, have traction moving towards what I want to move towards. That's a great point. And actually, it's interestingly enough, you say that because the fourth step to becoming indistractable. So we talked about number one is mastering the internal triggers. Number two is making time for traction. Number three is about hacking back the external triggers. Mm -hmm. Number four is preventing distraction with pacts. Pacts are these pre-commitments that we use to help us prevent getting distracted. And so exactly one of the techniques that I describe in the book is called an identity pact, where we know this comes from the psychology of religion. That when people have a moniker, when people have a name, a noun they call themselves, it's an instrument that helps them abide by what they really want to do. So when you call yourself, I don't know, a vegetarian, a vegetarian does not need to expend self-control to not eat meat. No, it's just something they don't do. A devout Muslim doesn't say to themselves, ooh, I wonder if I should have that gin and tonic. No, devout Muslims don't drink alcohol. It's just not what they do. Mm -hmm. So this is why I called the book Indistractable. Because I want people to have this new moniker that says, you know what? I don't respond to every email within 30 seconds. That's not what I do. I'm indistractable. Yeah, I put this screen sign on my monitor because I need time to think. I'm indistractable. And okay, it sounds a little strange. Maybe it's a little different. But you know, is it any diff- that much different than someone who wears unusual religious garb or eats an unusual diet? I-, I remember when I was a kid in the 1980s, I remember that my mom had ashtrays all over our house. Ashtrays. Now, she didn't smoke. My dad had stopped smoking years earlier. Why did she have ashtrays? Well, because back then, if someone came to your house, they just expected to smoke. Can you imagine if someone lit up a cigarette in your living room when they came over? That would be unimaginable, right? Right. How rude would that be? But I remember that when when my my, uh, parents did this, it was because it was just expected. It was just the norm. And I I recall specifically that my my parents, so my mom, we used to have these very pretty ashtrays. She took them away. And she replaced them with a skeleton hand ashtray, like an ashtray that was made to look like a skeleton's hand because she wanted to send a, a non-so-subtle message to people about the health effects Love of Love that, right. <laughs> right. And then I remember she took them away and she was one of the first people that I ever remember hearing this from. She would tell people, please go outside to smoke, right? Mm-hmm. So she was one of the, and I remember she lost friends over this. People thought this was very rude to ask someone to go outside to smoke. And that's exactly what's going on right now hmm. with our struggle with technology distraction. We are going through this transition period where we are learning, we are adopting what's called social antibodies. We're learning these new rules about how to use technology effectively. And I've already seen it, right? I see less people using technology in meetings because they realize it's a jerk thing to do. I see less people using technology when they're having a a lunch meeting or a date because they realize it's very rude. And so we are adopting these new social antibodies. And so the way we do this is to be the early adopters, to be the people who do these things today so that in you know five, 10 years from now, everyone is doing this stuff. Everyone has these practices. But the way we do that is by calling ourselves 
indistractable by making these pacts with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Along with those social antibodies, I've talked to a number of people. There seems to be this shift from our online planning tools, right? Like when the first Palm Pilot came out, I thought that was so cool. I can now move my paper calendar in, into the Palm Pilot, right? And now we have smartphones, obviously, we do this with. But now there seems to be this shift. I think it's part of the just kind of a resistance to how technologies influence our life so much. But lots of people are moving back to paper planners and yeah. paper calendars. And if that works for you, great. I mean, I, I wanted to make sure that this is not an anti-tech book. Right, I, love, right. I am not a Luddite. So the idea here is about how to get the best out of tech without letting it get the best mm-hmm. of you. And I'm not one of these people who tells you, stop using email, go on a digital detox, stop using Facebook. No, I think that's ridiculous. We are much better than that. We don't need these black and white rules that are filled with misinformation and disinformation about how technology is terrible for you. That's just not true. It's wonderful if we know how to use it in right. a way that serves us as opposed to us serving it. And that's not a distraction, and we, we are the masters of it. Yeah, absolutely. Good. I always ask guests for an innovation quote. We love quotes around here. What did you bring us, and why did you choose that one? Sure. So the quote that I kind of have, have had top of mind lately is a quote by Kierkegaard, who said that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. Anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. And I know many of us have felt this, you know, if you, if you, if you're a manager, if you're a business owner, it sometimes feels like, you know, there's a you're so full of anxiety. It's also because you have so much choice. You have so much power, so much freedom. And particularly in a day and age where there are endless videos to watch on YouTube, there are endless interesting articles to read. There are endless forums that you can participate in. And so that is the price of all this progress that we've made with these technological innovations is that, yeah, we do have this feeling of uncertainty, of anxiety, because we have so much freedom. We have so much opportunity to learn, to enjoy. So really, it's a, we shouldn't be surprised by that feeling. And we can take steps, I think, to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great point. All of us deal with some level of anxiety. And you mentioned before constraints, and there's actually some freedom in constraints, right? Absolutely, absolutely. That they provide focus and they actually, in many cases, lead to more innovation, which is something we talk a lot about here. So mm-hmm. thanks so much for sharing that. How can listeners find out about your book? You mentioned some resources as you went along. I know there's a website for those and obviously getting their hands on it themselves. Sure. So I'll leave you lots of links in the show notes for the scheduling tool, et cetera. But if you go to indistractable.com, uh, that's a, a site just for this, uh, for the book. There is a free video course. There's also an 80 page workbook that we couldn't fit into the manuscript. So I made it available online. Uh, that's complimentary as well. That's all at indistractable.com. And my own website, that's called nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name. That's N-I-R and far so near and far.com possibly one of the best website names urls ever near and far <laughs> thank when you we, when we first met i loved that thought that was that was fantastic <laughs> so and indistractable.com near thank you for writing this book i think it's really important i think we're in a time of life now that many of us feel distractions tugging on us and we want to have more control over that and this has been very helpful for me and i'm going to dive into your book further thanks thank you so much i appreciate it Chad. great being here again Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator, where product leaders and managers make their move to product master. We say that all the time. That really means becoming excellent at your craft, becoming a product master. We do that by learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so that you can create those products that customers love. Nira had some really great insights for us. Find a summary of those insights. Share those with others, please. You can do that at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 259. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. 
For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.